Today I have three important news stories that I want to unpack and explain for us. First, the impeachment hearings start back up tomorrow, and they invited Donald Trump and his administration to participate in the hearings. But of course they refused. I want to give some context for what that refusal means and what's next for those impeachment hearings. Also, I've come to the defense of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar at least three other times on this podcast, and I have to do so again today because the attacks against her, this time from someone running for Congress, are just that outrageous. And lastly, I want to give you some thoughts on the presidential race, including some of how I feel about Mayor Pete and Michael Bloomberg. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The, 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 the Breakdown. Yesterday, Donald Trump's attorneys announced that they're not going to participate in this week's new impeachment hearings. Now, on some level, there's nothing surprising about that whatsoever because they've refused to participate in almost every aspect of this process so far, even flat out demanding that their staff members break the law by ignoring subpoenas and refusing to testify. So the fact that the Trump administration wrote another five-page letter saying, no, we are still not going to participate in this process, it's not surprising. So the hearings are going to continue, but again, they'll continue without the Trump administration. And I just have to say, It's something that I've said a hundred times on this podcast. It's hard to know a moment in history when you're in it. But what the Trump administration is doing right now, flat out refusing to participate in his own impeachment, has never been done before in the entire history of this country. The man continues to erode the most basic standards and norms in our government. And what we are basically learning is that the United States was not at all prepared to have a president who simply refuses to obey the law. And outside of him being impeached in the House and removed from office or being defeated at election, what we see is that we really don't have any basic way to hold the president accountable. And Donald Trump, a man who has really never been held accountable for his entire life, he was quick to learn this system. He was quick to understand like, oh, the laws here are so sweeping and so broadly interpreted that he can virtually do or say what he wants, including encouraging his staff and friends and others to not respond to subpoenas, which still blows my mind. I have to pause there just for a minute. Please, if you ever are subpoenaed by the government to participate in some type of investigative hearing, do not believe for a moment that the privilege that is being extended to the president and this administration, that it extends to you. In fact, And I've said this before, there are multiple people in prison right now, not that committed a particular crime, but because they refuse to participate or respond to a subpoena and refuse to testify, 
They were held in contempt and jailed because of it. And yet here we have a situation where multiple members of the Trump administration have just flat out refused to participate. And so the impeachment hearings are going to continue tomorrow. And my best guess is that Donald Trump is going to be impeached in the House before Christmas. Uh, Tomorrow, my understanding is that the hearings will be very different than the hearings we had over the past few weeks that were primarily about uh, Ukraine and how Donald Trump attempted to use his leverage uh, of holding $400 million of congressional aid that had already been approved, holding on to that aid until the Ukrainian government came out and publicly announced that they were investigating Joe Biden and Joe Biden's family. He was trying to use his office and the powers of his office, abuse those powers rather for personal political gain, just deeply problematic. And yet here we are. And and my understanding is that the hearings tomorrow are going to have several legal scholars, I believe, unpacking and explaining why we are now in an impeachable moment. And everything that I've read and studied about this impeachment suggests that Democrats are on a fast track here and that Donald Trump will likely be impeached in the House before Christmas. Now, some people are basically framing this impeachment in the House as nothing more than a technicality because most experts say it's virtually impossible that the Senate which not only has a Republican majority, but it's virtually impossible that they'll do anything to uphold the impeachment. Remember that, and I've had to explain this, not just to my kids, but to to everyday people, that once you are impeached in the House, which happened to Bill Clinton, once you are impeached in the House, it goes to what they call a trial in the Senate, and 67 senators have to vote to basically uphold the impeachment and remove you from office. And so because not only because they have a Republican majority in the Senate, but it requires 67 senators to remove Trump from office. It is highly unlikely that that's going to happen, but I disagree that it's a technicality. I mean, I disagree that impeaching Trump in the house is a technicality because here's the thing. The House of Representatives absolutely has to do the right thing. Like they have to do what they can with the power that they have. And the House can't stop doing their job because they believe that the Senate is not going to do its job. And the job before the House is to is to ask themselves, has the president of the United States committed an impeachable offense? And that's what these hearings have been about. It's what the hearings tomorrow will be about. And if they determine and vote, yes, he has committed an impeachable offense, they will then vote to impeach him. And whether or not the Republican Senate upholds that impeachment and removes him from office The House has to always do the right thing. You don't refuse to do the right thing because you think somebody else down the road might not agree with you. So I wholeheartedly support what they're doing. I I think strategically 
that I understand Trump's strategy because he cannot win on the facts. He is preventing and encouraging and demanding even that multiple staffers and friends and others not testify. But he's doing that in an effort to say, hey, this process is not legitimate. It's not fair. But the primary reason it's not legitimate or fair is he's keeping the very people that he says could defend him. It's Donald Trump that's preventing them from testifying. And so this notion (laughs) that he's not getting a fair shake when it's him that is preventing key members of his cabinet and administration from testifying is a farce. But because he can't win on the facts, the only thing he can do is try to attack and undermine the process itself. I think he's losing that battle. And I think there'll be a time where he will regret not defending himself. And my gut tells me this at this point, because I've seen several statements from Republicans in the Senate. My gut tells me that at this point, he is basically going to stonewall all efforts in the House and not participate in it and just take the L with the impeachment and then basically try to control the process in the Senate, the trial in the Senate, because they have the majority. I think they're going to be underhanded and manipulative. I don't even think they're going to focus on the process of what Donald Trump has done. They're going to try to make that into, excuse my language, a complete shit show in the Senate. And he's going to try to win back public support there. So while he's losing the process in the House and will be impeached in the House, I think he's just holding out until he gets that trial in the Senate. Today's episode of The Breakdown is brought to you by Circle. Circle is so amazing. It gives me and my family so much peace of mind because it helps us manage our family's online time across all of their connected devices inside and outside of the home. With Circle, parents can filter what content is allowed. You can set limits for screen time. You can monitor history and usage. You can even reward kids for good behavior. And I love it because I tried to do this from their phones and their devices But I just figured out there are too many phones, too many devices, too many iPads, computers, too many boxes on the television and video game systems. Listen, you do anything for your kids. Do something easy that will keep your family on the right path and get Circle. And right now, our listeners get a limited time offer, $30 off of Circle Home Plus. When you visit meetcircle.com slash break and enter break at checkout. You get $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com slash break and enter break at checkout. That's meetcircle.com slash break and enter break to save $30. I love this company and want you to check them out. Break it down. When Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was first elected to the House, I knew that it was going to set a lot of people off. (laughs) And the thing is, like, this is a sweet, kind, compassionate woman. But I knew that her very humanity, not only because she is 
a young black woman, but because she is a young black Muslim woman, uh, a young black Muslim immigrant woman uh, who is from a country on Trump's banned list, uh, that she wears a hijab. Like, I knew that these things, that she was the first hijabi woman in Congress, like, I knew theoretically that it was going to disturb and set a lot of people off. But to actually see it and see the threats that she is constantly under, you may have seen the news just a few weeks ago, a man was just sentenced to 10 years in prison for threatening to kill Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. And she wrote a beautiful, painful public letter asking the judge to reduce the man's sentence. Like I was deeply moved by her compassion because she believes so strongly in justice reform that even the man who got 10 years in prison for threatening to kill her, she looked at it and said, no, that goes against my values. It's too much. And yet we want to do everything we can to defend and protect her. And I saw this week something that I had to do a double take on. The Republican woman running against Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, Danielle Stella, was just permanently banned from Twitter for threatening to lynch Ilhan Omar. Did you hear what I said? The Republican candidate who was running against Congresswoman Ilhan Omar in Minnesota was just permanently banned from the largest social network for politicians for threatening to lynch a congresswoman. I don't know if she's going to be criminally charged here, but Twitter clearly saw it and said they had enough. And this is the actual Republican running against her. And I say that it's a sign of the times, not because we've never seen such threats before in general, because of course we have. People have been not just threatening uh, black folk with lynching, but have actually been lynching black folk for over 100 years in this country. But I don't know over the past 100 years that we've ever seen a congressional candidate threaten lynching from a Republican running for Congress that we've ever seen them threaten a sitting congressperson like this. And while I'm glad that Twitter has now banned this this woman, uh, Danielle Stella, from from Twitter, she's still on other social networks. And what I find is that when people are not held fully accountable for their actions, like, is this woman still going to be the Republican nominee? Like, is that what we're really dealing with? And those threats emanated from a viral lie that is being told about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar across the Internet, that she is basically a plant, a mole from a foreign government, again, othering her, making her anything other than an American citizen, which she is, and and just trying to make her out to be, in essence, a secret terrorist. But because conservative media outlets not only shared these lies themselves, but amplified them all over social media, it causes people who are not sane or stable, it causes them to act out. So all of a sudden, you see a congressional candidate now threatening lynching. And I'm deeply disturbed by it. 
Now, I want to close with one final story today, and then I'll be back for some parting words, all right? The break. The break. The break. The break. The break. The break. I have to admit that I follow everything about the current presidential race. I follow it religiously. And of course, you all know that I'm a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders. I don't use this podcast to promote Bernie or his campaign uh, in, in great part, not just because I want you to keep listening, but I don't think it's the best use of this show. There are other there are other shows and podcasts and, and TV shows that do that. I do think we need more progressive outlets that talk just openly and honestly about the presidential race. But today I just wanted to give a couple of thoughts on two particular people that are running. <laughs> Before that, I did see that a few people dropped out this week and I was like, hold, hold on. They were still running. And uh, it just made me feel like there's, there's got to be a better way to kind of get a hold of this process <laughs> that we had that many people running so much so that there are people dropping out and we're like, I actually didn't know that that person was a legitimate candidate running for office. But I am I am really disturbed by one candidate and deeply concerned by another. I am disturbed by Michael Bloomberg. One, I'm I'm weirded out that he's now calling himself Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> he's been Michael Bloomberg his entire life. The entire time he was mayor, he was never Mike Bloomberg. I think he didn't have Michael Bloomberg reserved across social media. And so they found a way to get Mike Bloomberg. But it's weird that uh, in his late 70s, he just changed his name. Uh, that's not what I'm disturbed about. I'm disturbed at at probably three things about his candidacy. Uh, first and foremost, he's just trying to buy his way into office. And it is deeply problematic that he has basically announced that he's not even going to participate in the first four states. He may not even make the next debate that he, he said he doesn't want to accept campaign contributions and tried to make that out like that was cool. But it's just because he wants to self-fund it and he doesn't want to be accountable to anybody. And it's also because he wouldn't raise very much money. There aren't very many people who care so much about his campaign that they want to give to it. So he knows he would lose in those early states, so he's not even going to be on the ticket. He knows very few people would actually give to his campaign, so he's not taking money. Like, he basically is just trying to buy his way into office by flooding the internet and television all over the country with ads nonstop. But I'm also deeply disturbed by a decision that Bloomberg News made they announced publicly that Bloomberg News, which has hundreds and hundreds of reporters, would not be doing any critical pieces on him. Which is not a huge surprise, but it is still disturbing. And to balance that out, he said, but we also won't be doing any, any hard news pieces on any of the Democratic candidates, which is just like, okay, what the hell are you all going to be doing for the next nine months? which then led the Trump administration to do something, and I don't say this often, something that I actually agree with. Donald Trump literally and his administration said, well, hell, if you're not going to have, if your news company is not going to cover you critically, 
and it's not going to cover any of the Democratic candidates critically, then you can't come to our events. We're banning you from the events. Now, generally speaking, I hate the idea of any media organization being banned from political events. But at the point in which Michael Bloomberg or Mike Bloomberg, <laughs> whichever one he's going by now, at the point in which they made the decision to not be critical to him or to any Democrat, but basically just to exclusively be critical of the Trump administration, they backed them into a corner. And again, it's just what you get when you have billionaires and media moguls and other people running for office. There are just so many conflicts of interest. But the last thing that I'm disturbed about, I actually even just while speaking, have thought of several more things. But the last thing I'll share today that I'm disturbed about with Michael Bloomberg is this. Because he is funding so many people's jobs and is putting money into so many different causes, there are a lot of people who just aren't being critical of him the way they should be. And I'm disturbed by it. People who aren't calling him to task in the way that he deserves to be called to task because he's basically bought their silence. And that is deeply disturbing. I I have to run, but I do want to talk for a few minutes about Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, who is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I think he may be... I don't know that anybody who's been mayor of a smaller town has run for president and made it this far. Um, I live in Brooklyn, and if Brooklyn was a city, it would be the third largest city in the country if it was its own city apart from New York City. Uh, The area of Brooklyn, the neighborhood of Brooklyn I live in, literally has more people than South Bend, Indiana. Neither here nor there. I am I am disturbed at how much Mayor Pete people people frame it like this. I think the framing is wrong. People frame it as how much he has struggled to connect with black voters. In some way putting the burden on the black voter, the burden is is on Mayor Pete. And just this morning I I spoke to Uh, a member of the South Bend uh, City Council who made it clear to me, Sean, on the city council, we have had so many problems with Mayor Pete. And uh, his name is Henry Davis Jr. And he's a sitting city councilman there in South Bend who says, listen, he has ignored so many basic concerns. And here's my beef with Pete. And Pete and I have talked and exchanged messages several times over the past 18 months. My beef is that he has these big flighty ideas for what he would do as president that don't match anything at all that he's done in his very small town. And so you know, uh, city councilman Henry Davis Jr., a young man, a young black man who's there on the city council says, Sean, don't believe a word this man says about problems of police brutality. Don't believe a word this man says about 
school equity and all the issues around that because he has not done any of those things as mayor of this very small town. And and I'll close with this thought, and it's something that I have said not just here on the podcast before, but I've said as I travel and speak across the country. The greatest, the single greatest indication of who a presidential candidate really is, of who they will be as president, is not what they put on their website. It's not what they say even as they campaign across the country. The greatest indication of what they stand for, of what they'll fight for, is what they have stood for and fought for their entire lives and career. And when I inspect the actual record of Mayor Pete, there's not a lot there. And and so I'm calling BS on his justice policies, his education policies. When the people who live there in South Bend say, Sean, we've got nothing but problems out of the guy. And, and here's the thing. I should be able to look at your life and record of leadership and immediately tell from your priorities and your time what you care about. And when I do that with Mayor Pete, I see somebody who's ambitious for office, but not necessarily ambitious for deep social change. Break it down. Break it down.